Welcome back to ATBS, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick. Thank you for tuning in. Today, Michael Furness jumps in the pod ship for a conversation focused on climate change, important differences and distinctions. Michael holds BS and MS degrees from the University of California at Berkeley in soil science and forest soils and watershed management. He's broadly educated and experienced in a variety of subjects, including soil science, hydrology, watershed management, forest ecology, wildland civil engineering, fish passage, climate change mitigation and adaptation, and environmental monitoring systems. Michael is dedicated to the accurate dissemination of earth and ecological science through innovative presentations, web products, publications, workshops, and today, ATBS the podcast. Let's dive right in with Michael Furness. Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only sub-series, SFAO, I want to make sure that I win. And by winning, Jeff wins. And by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATBS rules the world. Michael, welcome to ATBS, the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Well, today we've got the opportunity to have a conversation about climate change. For people who don't know, I think it's really worth noting that Michael is an expert in forest hydrology, soil science, and climate change. How do they all tie together? Where do we start? What do we need to know? I guess you got to start from the beginning, Michael. Okay. I've done a lot of climate change education, and I think I'll start with just a couple of basics, a couple of distinctions that's important for people to know. And I'll offer a, an apology to those of you that know this well already, but if you don't, if you're kind of new to climate science, it's worth knowing it. First of all, the difference between weather and climate. Basically, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. Climate is simply a statistical description of the weather over a period of time. The longer you look at it, the better the answer gets. So normally, uh, a series of years, actually, it takes to really discern a climate change effect. And one good way to think about it is um, weather is what you're wearing today and climate is what all you have in your wardrobe. And then the other thing is uh, the distinction between mitigation and adaptation. And mitigation in the context of climate change means trying to control our greenhouse gas emissions so that we limit the change in the atmosphere and the warming that will occur. And you see lots of interest and solutions and emphasis on that. And so that's mitigation. And adaptation means uh, adapting to the changes that do happen. As the warming happens, we have to adapt to that. Uh, we don't have a choice. And that's adaptation. And somebody said, uh, mitigate, we might adapt, we must. So <laughs> hopefully we're going to mitigate, but we don't have a choice about adapting. It's warming very quickly. 
and there's impacts uh, already and they'll get worse through time and we have to roll with that. We have to figure out what we can do to continue to thrive and survive as the climate warms rapidly. So. I kind of missed it right on the front end, but, you know, climate change, important distinctions and differences. And so thank you for clarifying right out of the box, because I think for the lay person and I consider myself to be one. OK, let's let's understand it a little bit better so that we can dive into an informed conversation and let's cut through whether it's propaganda or bullshit or what have you. And that's why I'm thrilled to have you here today. I know I mentioned this on the on the intro, but 33 years working with the Forest Service, correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah. And about 10 years uh, in addition to that as a consultant, basically, uh, you know, picked up for various particular jobs. Not new to the process, not new to what's going on here on planet Earth. No, I'm kind of an old hand. And after a while, you do learn some things. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you being here to share with us. Um, home base is Northern California for you. It seems like that's where you've been based. I know you've traveled extensively. I think it'd be interesting to you know, talk a little bit about the similarities and differences. And you know, is climate change going to play out the same everywhere? Yeah, no, it really won't play out the same everywhere. And there's very important distinctions and differences. Uh, and it's important for climate scientists and specialists to notice and try to explain those differences so that we know where to put our efforts and our investments and what solutions are going to work well and which ones won't and what's coming at us. What do we know and what are we uncertain about and all that stuff. So, uh, it's very important to draw these distinctions and differences. Um, you mentioned I live on the coast. Yeah, I live in Arcata, home of uh, Humboldt State University, named for the world's greatest naturalist. And we have natural science and environmental engineering programs that are pretty much second to none here. But we're close to the coast. Uh, I'm just uh, about three miles from the Pacific Ocean. And basically, this is a climate refuge here, at least as far as temperature and moisture go. That is, it's cool and wet here. And even as the world gets warmer and potentially drier in some ways, it will stay cool and wet here. For example, we might have a half a degree centigrade rise in temperature here in the inland areas. Maybe like in Utah, you will see more like a four degree temperature rise. So big, big difference. And being close to this giant ocean, is what does it. It's a huge moderator of temperature and moisture. And the redwoods are here because they need uh, a lot of moisture and they can't tolerate freezing. We do expect the redwoods to persist here because of that uh, refuge effect. They've been around for 120 million years and been through all sorts of climates and they persist near the coast because that's where the extremes are highly moderated. Whereas there's other places that the extremes are going to be more extreme more difficult for humans to tolerate. Some places will become so warm, they're just not human habitat anymore. And uh, other places that get wet and other places that get drier. And so it's really important to understand those impact mechanisms and how they play out across these landscapes. And it tells us what we should worry about and what we should focus our attention and our research, our monitoring and our efforts on. And that's really important to do. And that's kind of the job of somebody like me that tries to understand that stuff and then try to make sense of it and pass that along. 
themes that we hear a lot about the rapid melting of the ice caps, you know, from my awareness of you and familiarity, such as it is that, yeah, it doesn't seem like that's the only place to focus attention. Yeah, the uh, the melting of the polar ice caps of Greenland and Antarctica is very important for how climate warming plays out across the earth. And I mentioned that we're a climate refuge here, and some of your listeners will be saying, well, wait a minute, if you're on the coast, you're going to see sea level rise. And that's right. And I don't mean to minimize that. We're going to have lots of impacts from that. And that is basically going to be largely controlled by the melting of these uh, uh, continental ice sheets, Greenland and Antarctica, but especially Antarctica. And so there's a lot of emphasis in trying to figure out how Antarctica works. <laughs> we haven't seen uh, warming like this in history, and so we don't have data to uh, know how these big ice sheets behave, and it's really complicated. So there's that. But one of the distinctions that's interesting is what happens with snow. I understand you're a, a world-class uh, champion ski jumper, and so you're interested in snow. I like it. Yeah. I, I frolic in this. I like water in all its forms. I do a lot of water skiing in the summer and a lot of snow skiing in the winter. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, snow is a special interest and it's a special kind of impact. And so, we don't have much snow here. Again, the temperature is moderated, so it doesn't get very cold. But in most of California, it gets quite cold. Most of California's water storage, even though we have a lot of big reservoirs, is in the form of snowpack. So we get a snowpack that lasts all through the summer, and that water is yielded out in the summertime when there's no rain. So that's our water storage system, and that snow is going away. And uh, that's because with warmer temperatures, less of the precipitation comes as snow and more as rain. And then what does come as snow melts quicker. So this is a big, big problem for California. We have the food basket of the world, the Central Valley of California, is unbelievably productive soils and climate, but it mostly depends on irrigation, and a lot of that irrigation water comes from the melting snowpack. And so the water districts and the irrigators and all are super concerned about this for a long time. Now, when you go out to Colorado, the snow is colder. It is colder when it comes, and it's, the snow itself is, is colder. And so it's less vulnerable. You'll lose snow in Colorado, but it's going to be a lot less than what happens in California. And then when you go all the way back east, it's really cold snow, and it's even less vulnerable. So in California, we have what's called warm snow. And so we're right at the edge where it's in a lot of the high Sierras, for example, except in the highest elevations, you're right kind of at the edge where it's easy for that snow to turn into water, and it's easy for that snow to melt when it gets warm. And so that's a big difference. And then I often go to tropical countries to teach and do vulnerability assessments. And I bring up snow and they look at me like, why are you talking about snow? We don't have snow here. <laughs> there are tropical places that depend on high elevation glacial melt for their water supply. But in most places, a lot of the people in the tropics have never even seen snow. And so it's not an issue. So in California, it's a huge issue. In Vietnam, it's not an issue at all, for example. There's a big distinction that plays out across the globe. Are you a skier? Have you been a skier in your lifetime? I've been a skier, but I'm uh, I, I'm not good at it at all. Okay. Yeah, I'm a face <laughs> planter. Yeah. Lots of people say that, and they're way better than they think they are. But <laughs> okay, it's great fun though. It's great fun. And for skiers, you know, we know a couple of things, right? The Sierra are known for Sierra cement. 
from a skier's perspective, like it, it falls and it packs in pretty tightly because to your point, it's more moist. It's, it's closer to water than it is to the other end. And here in Utah, where I am, you know, we're known for super dry, super light powder because we're in this arid climate and we're further inland and it's colder. And, and then I'm from back East where, you know, <laughs> if anybody has skied back East, which a lot of people who hear this will know this very well, that, you know, it can be anything from, you know, barely snow, rain, somewhat once it lays down and gets really hardly frozen with really cold temperatures, it turns like glacier ice. So fascinating just to hear you, you know, from a climate perspective and then being a skier and knowing that, you know, many a listener will be, you know, have slid around on the snow. I'd like to go, you just mentioned, I think you just mentioned Vietnam, right? Snow is not the thing. When you go and you educate and you have conversations there, what are you talking about? Well, it's a warm country, obviously, especially in the South, but North Vietnam gets uh, quite warm as well in the uh, summertime. So just heating of the atmosphere and the stress that that puts on not just humans, but the whole biosphere, everything depends on temperature. It's determinative of most everything that we care about. And so they're worried about that. But the big problem in Vietnam is a sea level rise. It's as big a problem as you'll find anywhere. There's lots of places that are quite susceptible. But, for example, the Mekong Delta, and people have heard about that. You know, I, I would say Vietnam is a country, not a war. <laughs> they turned the page on that so long ago, we're still processing it. But people have heard of the Mekong Delta here. And it's huge, right? I mean, the Mekong Delta, How? like what kind of... It's huge. It's the size of, it's the size of two New Jerseys. And it's 18% of the country's area, and it produces uh, way over half the food and fish. It's very productive. It uh, has a nice warm climate. There's lots of water. And so it's an extremely productive area. However, it's within a meter or two of sea level. It formed just in the last 6,000 years. And sea level is rising, and the Mekong Delta is sinking because of groundwater uh, extraction. When you pull out groundwater, the Groundwater actually holds the land up, and when you pull it out, it the land sinks. And so you have sinking land and rising seas, and then as the seas rise, the uh, water, the surface waters become saltier, and so people rely more on groundwater, extract more groundwater, the ground sinks more, and there's a, a vicious cycle or a positive feedback going on there. And there's other things happening, and, and so there's a prospect of... Uh, it's And it's not really a prospect, it's a near certainty. We just don't know quite exactly when this will all play out, but of losing most of the Mekong Delta to the ocean. And right now, there's lots of interest and lots of adaptation going on there. For example, rice farmers are switching to shrimp and doing okay, but there's only so many shrimp farmers you need. They don't have uh, this uh, sort of climate denial or head in the sand thing there. They're concerned about it, but they also have uh, a growing national prosperity. And so there's a little bit of a, oh, we'll be okay, and uh, look at our uh, prosperity, we're going nuts. And there's still lots of things being built in Vietnam that are, are highly susceptible and don't have much of a future. And so trying to educate people on that. And what I do there is teach in the universities, and, and the students are very appreciative of learning about this. They're all quite aware of it. And so teaching these mechanisms and uh, interacting with the other professionals there has been very uh, gratifying to me. It's just something I really love to do. As you were saying that, you know, teaching in the universities, I'm curious, 
you know, I, I think I've heard something like this in the medical profession that it takes about 15 years for something that's been recently discovered and let's say, you know, accepted, scientifically accepted in the medical profession to actually get to be taught in universities, to actually get to the people who are learning. So something like, oh, if you're going to medical school, you're relying on information that's 15 years old, give or take. Don't quote me on that, but, you know, something like that. Yeah. You know, considering that we got to be making some changes, uh, you know, now is the time, not 15 years from now, clearly. You know, how do you feel when you go and you teach, whether it be at Humboldt State University or, or you're over in Vietnam or some other part of the world? How does that information get to the people who need it and that can actually initiate change and, and really change things? Yeah, well, there is a gulf between the understanding and the um, overall societal willingness to take the necessary action. And as far as the understanding of this problem, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, it, there's uh, uncertainties uh, all over the place, but the basics of it are very clear now. And there's a tremendous literature on this topic. The availability of scientific information is is fabulous. It's it's too much, really. You can't really keep up with it. Even people that are in the business can't read everything that comes out. And generally, the more we look, the worse it gets. I wish I could tell you it was the other way, but it's not. Every paper you look at, it seems to, A, confirm what's going on and say, yeah, it's actually worse than we thought in terms of the types of impacts, the severity of impacts, uh, the irreversibility of the impacts and that. So there's that effect. That's not to say everybody knows what they need to know about it, but the current information is not lagging like it would be in medicine. It's, it's hard to show cause and effect with medicine. It's not that hard with climate change. It's physics. And the physics is not that complicated. The atmospheric physics is, is quite clear. How that plays out in the Earth system can be quite complicated. And there's things that we don't understand very well. And people are drilling in on those to try to understand, like, as I mentioned, the behavior of the Antarctic ice sheet. But we were warned about this in a speculative way in the late 19th century. A fellow named Arrhenius, he pointed out that Carbon dioxide and adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere is going to cause a heating effect. And he actually thought, well, this should, shouldn't really be a problem, but it's a mechanism and the mechanism is clear. And then uh, various other people noted that. And then in the 1950s, it was there was a real warning about it. This is going to heat up the atmosphere and it might be bad or it might not. We don't really know how much the Earth can assimilate of this, but please notice that we're putting a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, especially carbon dioxide, and it has a warming effect. It has a strong warming effect. And we can see that the Earth's temperature through time is just almost perfectly correlated with the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And then about in the 80s, and this is because it takes a long time for the statistics to really become clear, we started to see that warming. And now we really see it in great detail. And there was some confusion, say, in the 80s and the 90s. Is this just really us? Or are there some other influences that are causing a natural warming cycle? And now we know it's us. And we're sure about that. And assertions to the contrary are just politics or economics or somebody trying to protect something. The scientific uncertainty is not there anymore. 
And, you know, we weren't going to talk politics and that's great. I'm tired of it, but it's warming. It's warming fast. It's us. And we're sure about that. Couldn't be more clear. You couldn't state it any more clearly than that, Michael. That's right. And the scientific consensus is as good as it ever gets. And there's always a few cranky old professors that take issue with everything. And (laughs) they get a lot of attention these days when they do that. But nobody has come up with an alternative explanation for why we're seeing this very rapid warming. It's not the sun. It's not the orbital cycles. It's not some unknown mechanism. It's greenhouse gas emissions by humans. And we know that. And if you want to be scientific about it, that's the conclusion. And then you can talk politics about what we ought to do about it. That is a policy discussion, and it is perfectly valid to have those discussions. But going at it like this isn't even happening is is just ignorant and incorrect and non-scientific. Yeah. Thank you. We need to know facts. And if we are willing to present facts as uncomfortable as or unsettling as they are, and it doesn't really matter the subject or the topic, there are plenty of unsettling facts in the world. So if we're willing to put them out there and then see if we can, you know, peel the onion a little bit and and actually get to this, which is the societal willingness or unwillingness to change, you know, where are we there? And, you know, I don't know where you want to go with that, but I'd love to hear. Yeah, well, it's um, setting carbon on fire has really transformed our society in so many ways. And it's why we enjoy so much of what we do, driving and flying and cooking and uh, on and on and on and on. It has been an absolute boon to uh, human prosperity and especially uh, fossil fuels. We didn't realize that that was going to cause this kind of a problem, but now that we know that it does, um, and the problem is very serious and existential, really, uh, and affects everything, not all negatively, but mostly negatively, that we have to figure out other ways to power our lifestyles that is not burning carbon and and, uh, emitting greenhouse gases. And we're making good progress on that. There's lots uh, of hope. I think we can basically fix this. I put fix in quotes, but basically there's much to do and it would be nice if we could do it all right away, but it's very hard to do that. It's hard to move away from fossil fuels. They have incredible energy density. They're really easy to mine and obtain and use. And so we have to come up with ways of doing that that are difficult and uh, expensive and scaling it up is not easy. And The key thing is that um, we have to do this as uh, a globe. We have to do it internationally. If a few countries do it and the rest don't, it doesn't really work. And so that's a real challenge of having everybody do this together. There's big challenges to doing that. There's a lot of progress in that. There's a meeting every year and all sorts of committees and collaborations and scientists and politicians and everybody else working on this. But it's hard to take the short-term economic hits that are necessary to really control this as much as uh, the scientists believe it needs to be controlled. So we have the Paris Accord, and that's a great start, and it's an international cooperation that's very heartening, but it's not enough. <laughs> and so, But it's a good start, and uh, you know, people realize that it's not nearly enough that we're doing, but we have a framework for collaboration and a broad consensus that this is something that needs to be solved. And so we're moving in that direction. We're moving in the right direction. And in a lot of pursuits, that's the best you can expect. 
as I'm listening to you talk about, you know, this needs to be addressed globally. Right. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> something else we're all going through in our lives today here on July 1st, 2020 with um, coronavirus. And are these things at all similar? Yeah, that's uh, thank you for that question, because I, I have been thinking about that. Really, climate change isn't very real to people because it's slow and it's kind of invisible and it's confusing. And some people say it isn't even happening. And, you know, geez, I'm going to go with that because I need less things to worry about. And but the coronavirus and the covid disease is very real and we're all facing that now. We're all suffering. Of course, the suffering isn't even. Some are suffering far more than others, but we're all facing it. There isn't a single human on Earth that isn't facing this uh, disease. Uh, so it's really interesting. And like climate change, we're all in it together. While COVID is only homo sapiens, climate change is everything. It's the whole biosphere. Almost every living thing cares about temperature and moisture and wind and freezing and all that. But we're all in it together, and I think there's uh, a little bit of the uh, upside of COVID, if there is one. It's giving us a sense of a one human family. It transcends every boundary, uh, national and cultural and racial boundary, every kind of boundary you can think of. The virus doesn't care about that. I'm so glad you said that. I, I said that in a conversation the other day, right? Like it, it is indiscriminate. Absolutely indiscriminate. Yeah, you could be a you could be a multi-billionaire and it still could get you. Doesn't care. Yeah, that's right. Doesn't care. Yeah. And then I I hold out this you know personally, and it's been in conversation with a variety of different people that this is forcing us to acknowledge that we are a singular human family. We are of one tribe. We are one species. That's right. Yeah. The fact that borders and colors and beliefs and economics are out the window when it comes to coronavirus, I think, you know, gives me anyway some like, oh, coming out the other end, whatever that looks like, whenever that is, however it plays out, that, ah, we are really in this life, this world, this globe, this universe together. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's really important. And the coronavirus will go away. These things always have. It will. But once it's gone, this climate change uh, will be waiting for us and it isn't going to go away. It behooves us to think about climate change in this context of uh, a global pandemic, because it's also it's kind of a global pandemic in itself. It's not a it's not a disease, but it's uh, something that affects everyone in many, many ways. So. Right. It's indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate. Yes. Another thing about it is that we saw both of these things coming for a long time. You know, we didn't know it would take the form of a coronavirus, but we knew that there were going to be serious pandemics. And many people warned about that. There were a great many warnings. And it's like, this has happened before and it's going to happen again. Just because it hasn't happened for a while, it, it doesn't mean it won't. And in Asia, actually, uh, part of the reason they've done better is that they had the SARS scare. And they did have a pandemic there that really frightened everyone. And it didn't really get here to the U.S. So we didn't really get the practice that they did. But anyway, we saw we saw both of them coming. Another similarity is we kind of have science deniers on both sides. You know, that happens. And sometimes they're pretty loud. And it's confusing. The behavior of the virus is kind of confusing. And climate is a confusing thing. And people are easily confused by 
know, the difference between weather and climate and uh, is it really happening and what's really going to happen and how it'll affect me and all that. Both of them are subject to wishful thinking. I'll be okay. I can go down to the bar or the health club and I'll be fine. It's not really the case, but humans are good at wishful thinking. I think that's a good thing, maybe, but in something like this, it's not a good thing. It's like just to say, well, climate change will be okay. We'll be okay. We'll figure something out. We'll have technology or we'll eventually get it together. And that tends to put it off and say, we'll be okay. Another thing that's similar is we know what to do. The solutions are clear. There's no mystery about them. And behavior matters a lot. Obviously, behavior matters a lot in the spread of the coronavirus. And behavior is paramount in the mitigation of climate actions and adaptation as well. So one other thing I'll mention is that both with the pandemic and with climate change, the earlier you catch it, the easier it's going to be to control. So if you let things go too far, you may get into a situation where you can't control it anymore. Where do you think we are in each of these cases, pandemic and climate change? Well, um, in those places like the United States where it's really uh, running wild, we did not control it because we didn't act soon enough. There's all kinds of reasons for that, but clearly we missed the boat. We didn't get the stitch in time. And now it's kind of out of control. Some of the things that we could do to control it is no longer relevant. We can wear masks, which work great and social distancing and that. And so we know how to do those things. But some of the uh, opportunity is lost because we weren't quick enough. With climate change, it's a little harder to tell how much time we have, but we do have some time. And some of the scientists that I trust uh, say we've got five or 10 years. It's not a severe uh, you know, catastrophic problem yet. It really isn't. It's, it's relatively small, but it's moving in the wrong direction. Every kind of impact and the influences are all moving worse. This, of course, will be worse for our kids and worse for their kids. It's getting bad, but the sooner you control it, the more likely you're going to be able to get on top of it. If you prevent the emission of a molecule of CO2 now, that's more valuable by considerable amount than controlling that molecule of CO2 emissions 20 years from now. Uh, So it's the sooner the better. And there's a stitch in time effect with the pandemic and with uh, global climate change. So there's an urgency to climate change. It's like, we need to get on top of this before it becomes irreversible. I got to say, you know, when you say it's kind of music to my ears to hear you say, hey, you know, actually we do have a little bit of time and we actually the solutions are clear. You know, we shouldn't squander our time, (laughs) clearly. But to hear you say that, I think, provides me with some hope like, okay, it's not hopeless. And so then solutions are clear. Let's hear some of those. Well, um, a big part of that is, uh, is how we generate the energy that we use. And so we have to push big time into non-fossil energy uh, wherever we can find it. And then one of the hopeful things is that the cost of solar and wind energy have been dropping like a rock and are now cheaper than coal and even natural gas in some cases. That's really hopeful. And most people didn't see that coming. We thought that would stay expensive, and it hasn't. It's really competitive now. And we've got a long way to go to build up the infrastructure to actually implement that worldwide. 
And there's still some coal plants being built in developing countries. And we still rely on a lot of fossil fuels. And we still basically run our transportation system on fossil fuels. Although we didn't see electric cars being uh, so practical so soon. And that has happened. There's lots of uh, solutions. And they vary in terms of how expensive they are and how effective they are. If you're interested in solutions, and I hope if you're listening, you are, I would strongly recommend a project and a book called Drawdown. The uh, editor is Paul Hawken, and there's a whole team of uh, really good people that are working on this. And the book presents essentially like 100 different solutions and ranks them by how effective they are and how much they cost and how effective they are at controlling greenhouse gas emissions. So drawdown.org. Go there. It's just a great site. And lots of people have lots of lists of uh, solutions to climate change. Drawdown.org is the best uh, by far. And it's the one that I use in my classes. uh, And I try to give young people uh, solutions focus, not just uh, we've wrecked the world. Doesn't really uh, motivate them. Having a solutions focus, I think, is motivating. and And you have to bring that in. We can deal with this. And we know how to do it. And uh, drawdown.org is a really great resource for doing that. Fantastic. Uh, you know, because I think I, I just want to say here that, you know, getting up in the morning, right? Like what gets us out of bed in the morning, right? Like there's so much news out there that can be disheartening, discouraging, divisive, all of these things. And, you know, if we arm ourselves or gather, collect information that we can act upon and, you know, wake up with some enthusiasm and some hope and, and, you know, a desire to move forward and be part of solutions and make change. You know, I can get up in the morning with a smile on my face for that. I can, I can get fired up for that. Yeah, there you go. And I think uh, part of the challenge is to teach children to honor the global commons. And there's no global commons like the atmosphere. When you breathe out your molecules of CO2, in six months, those are everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. In a year, they're everywhere on Earth. So it's absolute global commons. And there's kind of a scale mismatch between what happens locally and the global commons of the atmosphere and how we have to steward that. And so I ask teachers, I mainly teach university students, but every year I get a crack at 30 K-12 through teachers in a particular institute This would be year 11, but we're not doing that this year, obviously. But how do you teach children to value and honor and steward the global commons? And, you know, it's very easy to say, why should I do that? It doesn't really benefit me at all. It just benefits all of humanity. Well, how do we convince people that that's a worthy thing to do? You know, I've kind of come around to that, but not everybody has. And, you know, why don't I buy my big gas guzzler because I like those and everybody else is doing it, or I don't get any particular benefit out of, you know, buying a a small car or driving less or riding my bike. So why should I do that if I don't feel like doing it? So I think that's a big one is to, uh, to have that feeling of the global commons is worth taking care of. And I don't know that we can get very far with that with adults you know we have our way of looking at the world but the children yeah i think we could convince them that this is something to do and then just like it becomes natural to wash your hands when you leave the bathroom it becomes natural to turn out the light when you leave the room and those kinds of things that we just care about these things 
and we just naturally do them. And it's not because it helps me to turn out the light, although it helps your parents, you they're paying the electric bill, but, right. but it helps the world. And I like the idea of helping the world and I am a good citizen. I'm going to help the world. So, yeah, I try to foreshorten my talks to the teachers these days so that I can pose that question and listen to their ideas about it because they'll know best how to, how to get to children much better than I do. So, well, thankfully we've got people who are, you know, good at what they do and, Thankfully, it's people teaching, right? Gosh, I'm so grateful. And, you know, daughters who are 18 and 19 years old, and I said for years in parent-teacher conferences, you know, thank you for teaching. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Question for you, Michael. I see lots of your pictures, and, and I'm appreciative, and you spend a lot of time outdoors, and you live in a beautiful part of the world. It seems to me, and I'll do this when we're done recording, I'll go out for a walk in the woods, and feel what it feels like to feel the earth and see the trees and feel the trees and the breeze and the sun. And I mean, there are a lot of places in the world where it's much more difficult to do that than say where you live or where I live. But it sure seems like a really valuable thing to do is to get out there and realize we're part of something bigger. Yeah, you know, there's, I guess, another, I hate to put it this way, but another upside to our current pandemic. And as you know, we're a tourist area here. It's empty in the off season. And usually there's a fair number of tourists here in the, in the summertime. There's more than ever right now. Wilderness areas and backpackers and all that, they're out and doing it. We see more visitors than we have seen in years and years. And so I think everybody had that feeling of, I've got to get out of the house. And I can go to these natural areas and it's safe to do that. And so people are doing that and reconnecting with nature. And, you know, those of us that have been in one Zoom meeting after another, we're getting tired of these screens. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're, they're very fascinating and engaging, but I want to look at trees and grass for a while. And so that's happening. And I think it's uh, super important. It's something that is coming out of this isolation that we've been subjected to. It ties these two things together as, you know, I said earlier, you know, okay, I think we're going to come out of this pandemic with a much greater appreciation for, you know, being this one species, this one family. And I see it here in Utah. There are more people out on bikes. There are more people out on the trails in the mountains. So, okay, we're, you know, somewhat locked down, but let's get out and oh when you're out there appreciate the fact that it's here and we need to be stewards and mindful stewards yeah that's right the bike shops can't keep their inventory so many people are buying bicycles now so yeah so there's that that's happening and that, that may create some sort of long-term changes in in how we live and what we appreciate and that so well, maybe a healthier, certainly in this in this part of the world, a healthier community, right? Getting out and exercising is keeping our immune system going in the right direction by being more healthy gives us a better chance of survival. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that that comes home hard and fast. Just a, a little story. I have a dear friend who said, you know, I, I wanted my, uh, I have an interview today and I wanted my coffee to work really well. So I skipped the coffee yesterday so that when I have it today, it, it, it works better. And uh, said, does that actually work? He says, oh yeah, it really works. And so I'm thinking when I finally get to hug my friends again, it's going to be just ecstatic. 
It's going to be really good. It's going to be so good, you know? <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, even the elbow bump is, uh, we, we were even a little nervous about doing that. But uh, mm. anyway, when we get to really associate with each other again, we're going to really appreciate that more than ever, I think, because we've been prevented from doing it. And uh, it's hard on everybody. We're all going a little crazy without that human contact, except with whatever little pod you associated with. Yeah, I mean, we are a social creature, right? Like, yeah, we're, <laughs> yeah, we've evolved this way. Yeah, yeah. Michael, what I'd love to share is, you know, and what people might be ready to hear. You know, you talked about drawdown.org, which I just, I, I think that's fantastic. You know, like, what's the best single thing people can do? I'm glad you asked that. A lot of the solutions basically require national or international action. For those things, you want to vote and you want to participate. But in terms of the individual actions, I would like to point out the sheer power of adolescent girls. There are 600 million adolescent girls in the world. And in the poor countries, about a quarter of them never go to school. And for each girl in a developing country that gets seven years of school, she marries four years later. She has 2.2 fewer children. And she makes 15 to 25% more for each year of secondary school she attends. And that is the single most powerful thing that can be done. As I say, many solutions take this very broad collective action. This is an individual action that we can readily do. And so how do you do it? Well, there's a number of ways. Uh, the Malala uh, Foundation is there, but I really like rescue.org. And there's lots you can do through rescue.org. It was founded by Albert Einstein. You may have seen Meryl Streep on your feeds recommending rescue.org. They're very reputable. They have very low overhead. And you can spend 60 bucks and educate a girl in a developing country for a year. And it's an easy thing to do. Um, and it's really, really effective. And I would say, yes, recycle and get a small car, limit your use of plastics and all these things. But if you really want to do something that has tremendous potency is send a few poor adolescent girls to school. There's nothing better. Wow. I'm guessing here, but I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in saying that's not what I expected to hear. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a little more social than scientific. But if you look at how you alleviate poverty, how you maintain biodiversity, how you maintain and conserve ecosystem services, and how you address climate change. This is really, really potent. And the drawdown.org will validate that. And so they have all their solutions ranked, so we're the best to the least. And if you put together educating girls and empowering women, it comes up number one. And that's a good thing to maybe maybe leave the podcast with is that sheer power of those 600 million adolescent girls, a quarter of which never go to school. But you can send them to school. The schools are there. It just takes a little bit of money. And it's especially girls because if the family doesn't have enough money to send all the kids, they send the boys. So send the girls. The women are, have, have, have a bigger influence on society. If you send them to school, everything gets better. Michael. I am honored, privileged, thrilled, delighted that you joined me on ATBS, the podcast, share what you know. There's nothing I can add to that. <laughs> there's, no, there's, no, there's nowhere for me to go from there except to say a very, very heartfelt, uh, sincere thank you for joining me. All right.
right. It's been my pleasure, Jeff, and uh, all the best to you and homage to your podcast series. I think it's really uh, a big contribution to the world. Thank you so much. And I hope to revisit at some point. So thank you again, Michael. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Be well. Thank you for listening and thank you to Michael for sharing his time, passion, and knowledge with us. Michael's website is listed in the reference section of our program notes. And I encourage you to check out the Drawdown book and project, and also to have a close look at rescue.org as well. Links are in the program notes. If you're enjoying ATBS, the podcast, and you'd like to help build this community, let your family, friends, and colleagues know about the podcast by word of mouth or social media. Like us, follow us, subscribe, become a patron. All of these actions help. And until next time, be well.